Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a songwriter, an ambient sound artist and creativity slow coach. And I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. So during the spring, we've been reading The Courage to be Disliked by Koga and Kashimi in the Haven Book Club. We've taken it uh, one section at a time over the last um, four months or so, five sessions. Um, and we finished up last weekend as I'm recording this. It's a book I first read back in 2018 and it's been a really great experience going back and reading it again uh, and doing it alongside others I mean it makes such a difference to read a book knowing that you're going to discuss it um, with people who have uh, you know different opinions different backgrounds personalities ways of interpreting things and in this episode of the Gentle Rebel podcast I'm going to share some reflections that I've Uh, kind of written this week um, based on some of the things we've talked about in those sessions uh, and also my kind of interpretation of of the book and it's been inspired by each of the uh, the five sections the five um, the five nights in which the two characters around whom the the work revolves the philosopher and the youth um, talk about different aspects of Alfred Adler's um, individual psychology and so I wanted to integrate some of the ideas uh, from the book and from our discussions into my own way of thinking. And so this, I guess, mini writing project has really helped me uh, to do that, to reflect on, OK, what is this about? What is what am I taking from this um, and how am I applying this um, in my own thinking, in my own life, in my own way of seeing things and in the way that I uh, kind of work with others as well through my uh, creativity and through my coaching practice? So I'm going to potentially run another set of um, book club conversations around this in the future. Um, you know, I'd love to go back in with people again and see what comes up next time, because I think it will always bring new um, and different perspectives. Um, also, I've spent a lot of time putting those five sessions together. So I'd really like to, I guess, put that to use again, too. Um, you know, it seems a shame to only do it once when there's all this rich material just sat there. And and also, I really enjoy <laughs> talking about it. It's not like, I've got all this stuff, I might as well use it. Um, so if you listen to this episode, you think, yeah, actually, this is something that I'd really like to explore myself in a bit more depth. Some of these ideas are resonating and, and I'd like to, you know, sort of grapple with them and, and see what they bring up for me and how they can um, maybe help me shift some stuff then uh, yeah i'll share a link to register your interest so so just pop your email address in um, and then if there's a, an appetite for it we'll we'll do it and i'll I'll let you know um, when i'm running them again um, and if there's yeah enough people would we'll, we'll do it sooner rather than later um, and if you'd like to just read books maybe not specifically this one but other books alongside other people more generally if you if you like the sound of of this whole concept then um I'd love to invite you into the, the Haven, which is where we do it. You know, we've always got something on the go there. Uh, we go slowly. There's no expectation to even keep up with the reading. Um, so sessions are structured uh, in such a way that the conversations kind of take ideas from the book as inspiration, as a catalyst for um, what then becomes a, just a, a relevant and meaningful discussion uh, for those there. Um, so as long as I do my job and explain the concepts um, as as a uh, frame for the questions that we're looking at um, in a way that 
is helpful <laughs> and makes sense, then yeah, it's it's open for anybody, whether you're reading uh, the book or not. So head to the-haven.co um, to register for um, yeah your monthly membership um, there. Okay, so The Courage to be Disliked is an introduction to the psychology of Alfred Adler. Uh, as I said, he was one of the prominent psychoanalytic thinkers of the 20th century alongside Freud and Jung in the Vienna Circle. Definitely not as well known uh, as those two um, in the kind of mainstream um, world. But his thinking's led to, I think it's had a, a huge impact and influenced a lot of um, everyday philosophy and psychological schools of thought, which you, you might recognize as we go. Um, it approaches its subject differently than a lot of uh, books in the personal development genre. And I think that's where The Courage to Be Disliked sort of places itself. Um, I think it practices its message with gentle provocation and at times a prickly delivery that can feel jarring. <laughs> I think in the book club discussions, it sort of has had that impact. It has had the, oh, I'm not sure I'm responding that favorably to these characters. Yet, rather than spoon feeding its readers, I think it collaborates with us. It invites us into the dialogue itself to push back against those ideas that may feel prickly, those things that we are, as we're sort of leaning into them, um, we're kind of also at the same time, you know, resisting them, pushing back on them and, and having that discussion um, with the characters in it. And I really appreciate this way of, of distilling those principles of Adlerian psychology. I think it really practices what it preaches. It catalyzed some fascinating discussions infused with this kind of, I think, playful pushback and deeper questioning. And I think this comes from the fact that it really trusts and respects its readers. Um, I really love our community conversation. It was really fun to explore a book that arms us with new ways of thinking about real challenges in everyday life. The book pushes back on itself and permits us to tarry and grapple with it too. And at times, the smug tone of the philosopher makes it quite compelling and attractive to join forces with the young man to find holes in the position that the philosopher takes. I don't think this is accidental. In different ways that, and to, diff, uh, to varying degrees throughout the book, the two characters are pretty hard to like in a, an absolute sense, in an ongoing sense. There's no, neither of them is someone that you can relate to fully, and I think that is really deliberate. The young man arrives on the scene um, I think to some degree as an embodiment of modern cynicism, a personification of our um, age of separation, if you want to call it that, in which um, we are duty bound to worship or destroy people and their ideas to go full on into this sort of polemic position. We're either all for them or we're completely against them. And so this guy's mission is to disprove everything that the philosopher proposes. Um, why? I don't know. Maybe that's a discussion for us to hold as we read the book um, as readers. Do we share that same desire to resist change, to resist the possibility of change in our life? And my first question when I encountered the book initially and imagining its message before I read it was, do we really need more people with the courage to be disliked? Isn't there enough obnoxiousness filling the air already? After all, many people are already great at doing things that other people don't like, other people find outrageous. Um, and I think this is where we peel back a critical layer of the book. 
undergirding this quest for self-acceptance and spirit at peace with itself is the freedom to be disliked by people that we admire and would like to be positively recognised by. It's easy to be disliked by those that we see as other. Adopting a binary view of victims and perpetrators, heroes and villains, good and bad, simplifies the world. It's an excellent way to sell products and services and ideas fueled by paranoia, distrust and fear. To be disliked by the other feeds the lifeline that allows us to keep living in separation, holding people like that at arm's length. But if we fear those we admire disliking us, we can lose ourselves. We might park our core values and our inner compass if it means being accepted and recognised by the right people. This reflects a script that we write quite early in life through our drive for safety and belonging. We find conditions on our worthiness and our acceptability. Who must I be? What do I need to do and not do in order to remain safe and protected through acceptance and belonging? When we carry this with us, it can lead us away from ourselves. And when the drive for belonging and recognition is viewed through a vertical framework of relationships, in other words, we view people through a pecking order, We can end up serving the desire to be liked ahead of our inner compass, the thing we know to be right. Or we head down the other way of that path, viewing others with impenetrable suspicion and distrust that leaves us separated and dead inside. I recently heard a sportsperson say, I love winning, but what makes me a dangerous opponent is that I don't mind losing. I've done it often and it's not actually that bad. This is a particular type of freedom. You know, he's separated losing from his story of self-worth. Acceptance at the level of being, whether or not I win, I will ultimately be okay. Rather than at the level of doing, I must win in order to be okay. I must win in order to be worthy of acceptance. And so this idea of the courage to be disliked is the same. If someone doesn't like me, that's kind of their prerogative. It's also okay if they dislike what I did. Although feeling appreciated is nice, I can't compel them to appreciate me. That ultimately is their task. Making decisions based on the desire for recognition will only leave us disconnected from ourselves. We might be waiting for someone else to make the first move, to provide permission or reassurance that it's safe to step forwards. A deeply sensitive nervous system really bakes this in as well. You know, we observe before taking action, ensuring that we make the best choice for the situation. And this can cause stagnation and even regression when it translates to interpersonal relationships. If we wait for others to do the right thing or be cooperative and decent, we're going to be waiting for a long time. The message is that what others do while it impacts us is beyond our control. Someone's thoughts, beliefs, and judgments about us are their task, not ours. Making the first move is hard, but it's essentially all we can do. Start without expectations or conditions on how people react. Step forward from a place of intrinsic motivation, not external reward. We can create what compels us. Of course, no one's going to say it's safe to do so, because it's not. It's vulnerable, it's risky, it's uncertain, but it's usually worth it. Encourage someone with words of support. Confront the thing that is nagging away at the back of our mind. 
connect with our values, our convictions? What kind of world do we want to live in? How do we want others to feel about themselves? It takes courage to admit that something isn't working if no one else seems to notice or care. It takes courage to slow down and rest in a busy world, to say no to the widespread consensus and choose a different direction. People will dislike us and that's not a great feeling, but we can connect with something that drives us beneath the desire for recognition. Why does this path matter? Why am I choosing this? Even if no one is watching, why would this still be important? Maybe others are waiting for someone else to start first. What might we do to get the ball rolling on bringing about the world that we want to live in? Does the past determine our future or can we change it? What factors determine who we become and how our lives turn out? Does the past dictate the future? What does it mean to choose happiness? These are all foundational questions as we begin the courage to be disliked. The book enjoys poking and prodding at assumptions that we might carry and it launches into a fundamental presupposition in Adlerian psychology this idea that trauma does not exist. But as with all headlines, there seems to be a lot more than meets the initial eye beneath this line. As I understand it, trauma is the unconscious emotional response to an event. It's how the sub-language body and mind cope with feeling uncertain, unsafe and at risk. And it's a, a kind of residue left by our inability to cope with our experience of the experience. The young man in the book talks about a friend who's afraid to leave his room. He imagines, you know, what must have led to such a situation, stating that effects always have a cause. There's a reason that he's in this state. But the philosopher suggests that rather than seeing causes as external, for example, being bullied or having an accident, trauma is by definition caused internally and applied externally. Therefore, we might find the power to change our lives if we see our choices as goals rather than determined inevitabilities. So the word goal here might conjure uh, a sense that this implies conscious intention at the level of action. For example, I want to stay in my room. It's my goal to stay in my room. So I'm actively choosing to live like this. But actually, many goals underpinning our activities are driven by the unconscious desire for safety, certainty control, belonging, acceptance, etc. So the body wants to keep us safe. And so a state of anxiety might be the best way that it knows, quote unquote, to do that. This is why we might get stuck repeating uh, behaviours and making choices that really frustrate us, wishing that we could change, but feeling like we can't. The philosopher implies that the more familiar we become with this way of seeing our actions and relating to our actions, the more space that we can create to mould and play with the goals that underpin our lives and drive our lives beneath the surface. The young man has decided that despite his wishes for a better life, there is actually no way he can change his life. There's no way he can change uh, who he is. His fate has been determined by his upbringing. Therefore, he concludes the fact that people wish they could change proves that they can't. Otherwise, well, they'd just do it, wouldn't they? 
but the philosopher encourages him to look at things slightly differently. The worst horrors, abuses and calamities happen to people and communities. The denial of trauma is not a denial of those things. Instead, it's the suggestion that while events will almost certainly influence it, they don't determine the exact story that follows. Otherwise, everybody who goes through that initial event, that experience, will draw the same meaning from it and live identical lives. Our life is not a script that we have to live by, handed to us by someone or something in the past, but it's something that we are writing in the here and now. In my old workplace, whenever something went wrong, the first question people would ask was, whose fault was that? What did they do? And it felt like an unsafe place to make mistakes. Who can we blame? This is a question that permeates society today. Unfortunately, it's often our first response. As such, we might spend time pointing fingers, deflecting blame, looking over our shoulders, covering our tracks, ironically creating probably a more dangerous world to protect ourselves from. This might become a self-perpetuating spiral and lead to a polarised view of situations, people and events. We relinquish responsibility for our actions when we have something to blame, saying things like, well, I did it because I had no choice. Well, they started it, so therefore I had to finish it. Again, this does not absolve responsibility and fault in people who do ridiculous, unspeakable, horrific things. Rather, it helps us to do the opposite, providing a foundation for meaningful accountability that can't be outsourced to predetermining factors. Another aspect of this trap of determinism is the way we view others. The young person adopts a victim mentality, which is evident in his conclusion that if only he was like a friend of his, he would be happier. Of course, he knows he cannot be another person, so he permits himself not to accept himself by telling a story about the perceived happiness of his friend. And this isn't uncommon. We might look around us and decide that other people's lives are whole and complete. And this opens a door to resentment and blame and excuses towards ourselves. It's easy for them. They know the right people. They get all the luck. These are the things we might think as we disempower ourselves with unfounded judgments of other people. Another determining factor the young man points to as a reason he cannot change is his personality. He sees himself as a fixed subject. But personality and disposition are described as tendencies of thought and action. These are primarily influenced by how we think about and define ourselves. In this sense, we equate our personality to our way of viewing the world. Still, when judged through a deterministic framework, we're condemned to personality rather than free to collaborate with it to serve our goals. Disposition and temperament is our natural tendency when we're in our original position, if you like. For example, people might have a, a calm or a fiery disposition. We might describe someone as naturally inquisitive or authoritarian, innately warm or aloof. We have no influence or power in these things when viewed through a deterministic lens. We say, well, that's just who I am, deal with it. But lifestyle choice is our relationship with those natural dispositions and the story we tell about what it means to be us. This lifestyle is something we can constantly flex and shift according to need before returning back to that point of rest once the thing we need it to do is done. 
Lifestyle also emerges through our choices about how and what to see in people, including ourselves, in things and in situations. It influences our world experience. What we anticipate is usually what we're going to notice and what we see will affect the story we tell ourselves about the way things and people and we are. It takes courage to change. I imagine many of us can relate to the story of the philosopher's friend who dreams of being a novelist but has never completed any of his work. He's too busy with his job, he cannot find the time to write. Perhaps, the philosopher speculates, he's afraid of criticism or being confronted by the reality of writing something shoddy that gets rejected. Maybe he's scared to acknowledge that he's not very good yet. We choose instead to live in the realm of possibilities, a place where if only we had the time, the space or the right equipment, we could do what we dream of. The next set might later replace these excuses like, I'm too old now, or I've got too many other responsibilities. How we hold our current situation influences our capacity for happiness. In other words, if we look around and find excuses, we lack the courage to be happy. We make things complicated so that we can't do them. But what if things could actually be pretty straightforward when we break them down? Humans are complex social beings. We're wired for connection and belonging in order to survive. Yet our subjective consciousness and individuality present all manner of interpersonal relationship problems. Each of us carries a world of feelings and needs and desires, and we all have different ideas of how things should be. We're driven by many things, known and unknown, conscious and unconscious, making life beautifully creative and profoundly challenging. In The Courage to be Disliked, Kashimi and Koga present the Adlerian notion of social interest and discuss the idea that the community is the source of life's meaning and its trouble. However much we might desire it, we can't live in genuine isolation. According to Adler, the primary task of a person's behaviour is to be self-reliant, so responsible for our own judgments, our choices and beliefs, and to live in harmony with society a conscious development and awareness of social connectedness and community feeling. So self-reliance isn't about becoming the proverbial island and doing everything independently. Instead, it's about recognising what we are responsible for so that we don't interfere with other people's tasks. If we interfere in this for one another, we create disconnection, distrust and loneliness. Loneliness, in this sense, isn't being without people. It's having people around but feeling alienated from them. And so this underpins the loneliness that sweeps our modern global world. You know, we're more connected than ever, yet we're also more isolated. To feel lonely, we need other people. The more people we feel separate from, the more loneliness we experience. Communication is not the same as a relationship. Worries arise beneath the social shadow. We might worry about what people think, our shortcomings and the possibility of failure. However, our basic needs and survival concerns sit within a collective structure, a collective set of beliefs and priorities. Worry arises when two key foundational assumptions are lost, when we lose our sense of ability and see people as enemies rather than comrades. We might see this distinction in our relationship with anger. Personal anger explodes and cools. 
whereas righteous indignation is like a flame that steadily burns within and is sustained by community feeling and social interest. Recognising this difference when anger arises from a futile power struggle that won't be resolved is essential. Even if the other person backs down, they will ultimately return, fueled by their grudge and clinging to their destructive desires. When we feel angry due to another person's words or actions, that is not the moment to engage. It can feel cathartic to unleash outrage, but it usually only perpetuates the power struggle and strengthens the other person's position. In contrast, righteous indignation emerges from a clear and thoughtful place. It partners with community feeling to work towards making the world better for everyone. Do you believe people are equal? I think most of us would probably instinctively say yes, but the way that we think of interpersonal relationships can actually tell a different story. We often order and rank ourselves against others using a vertical social structure. And in this case, when comparing ourselves to others, we apply objective measurements to our measures of worth, to our sense of self-worth and value as, as human beings. This creates a competitive rather than collaborative approach to the community because we struggle um, for belonging, for acceptance, for value. This inferiority or superiority complex positions all problems squarely at the door of other people. It breeds envy, resentment and enemy-making, which only reinforces itself as a way of seeing and engaging with the world. Unfortunately, this structure plays out in the political landscape and social media today. Why do so many people struggle to enjoy the success that they work hard to reach? Because they build it through a lens of competition, the foundation of which is a complex landscape overflowing with enemies. Adler describes a healthy feeling of inferiority emerging through our relationship within ourselves rather than in comparison to others. But a playful and instinctive knowledge about what we want to improve in ourselves. We're drawn to plant and grow and harvest. This is baked into our sense of purpose and meaning as we survive and thrive as human beings. Likewise, a healthy desire for superiority is not related to our position compared with others, but to our position in relation to our ideal self. We're improving ourselves and the conditions around us. The ideal self is not a place we can reach, it's not some destination, but an organising structure around which we make our choices that support a meaningful lifestyle. An inferiority and superiority complex is built on the perception of external limiting factors. When we outsource responsibility for our ability to find meaning in life to the world out there, we tell ourselves it's only because of this limiting factor that we can't succeed. These complexes are two sides of the same coin. The inferiority complex focuses on what isn't true that needs to be for success to happen. Uh, for example, I'm an introvert, so I can't succeed. A superiority complex turns this inferiority into a point of righteousness. If it weren't for extroverts, I'd be able to succeed. And so both sides of the coin strip us of personal agency, responsibility and power. True confidence doesn't boast. On the contrary, it grows from self-acceptance and community feeling. This feeling is born from an unconditional belief in others, seeing them as comrades and collaborators rather than enemies and competition. This changes the way that we see and hold everything around us. Our relationship with interpersonal relationships affects and impacts our perception of reality. We build our beliefs about the world on how we think about others. And while it's true that many people do deplorable things, 
We cannot wait for those things to stop before we take a step in a better direction. How we think about and hold our interpersonal relationship challenges is what essentially gives life meaning. What does it mean to let go of other people's tasks? This is one of the core questions in the book. We're interdependent social beings. We need one another to survive. And yet our interpersonal relationships sit at the core of so many of our challenges. Boundaries are not about shutting people out, but understanding how to separate tasks and discard those that don't belong to us. We shouldn't mistake separating tasks with separating ourselves as human beings. On the contrary, the tasks are specific responsibilities only we can carry out through the choices we make as conscious and goal-oriented beings. But how do we know which tasks belong to us and which ones are other people's? Our task is to cooperate with others to reach common objectives. Cooperating is not the same as conforming. It's about collaboration and understanding that everyone sees and experiences the world differently. Our task is to remember that our way of seeing and experiencing is neither right nor wrong, and it's the same for everyone. No one else can choose our judgments, our thoughts, our beliefs. And whether or not to like someone is our task. Likewise, whether or not someone dislikes us and our actions is their task. When we try to control or weigh into those tasks, we hit a world of potential pain and frustration. This sits at the heart of courage when dealing with what people think of us. It's not about hardening ourselves and hardening our hearts in the face of judgment and criticism. Instead, it's about seeing our task, recognising what we can and cannot influence. Then, when we're free from the fear of what people might think, we can focus on our most meaningful projects. Simple, right? (laughs) Uh, It shifts our relationship with our interpersonal relationships. Helps us see others as comrades, not enemies. Interdependent you know, non-attached rather than independent, detached or dependent, attached. Independence and dependence are both forms of interpersonal power struggles. Conversely, interdependence is a creative collaboration that requires a commitment to meaningful intention, social interest and community feeling. This is not easy in a world where no one seems to get that, but maybe it feels that way because we're all waiting for somebody else to start. We should take a first step forward instead of passively waiting for other people or situations to change. Not to interfere in that person's tasks, their beliefs, thoughts and judgments, but to decide whether or not this relationship is helping us with our tasks and making a choice based on the conclusion we reach. Many relationships come to reflect explicit and implicit power struggles, but love is impossible when we restrict the other person and control the parameters of the relationship. Such shaky foundations doom a relationship to fail. Love is a collaboration, not a competition. Recognising our interrelationship patterns is challenging, especially if belonging has been conditional since we were young. Suppose we were taught to equate self-worth with external factors like be good, kind, pretty, clever, the best, caring, independent, busy, brave, considerate, and so on. In that case, we're more likely to enter vertical power dynamics in future relationships. We experience this when we base our self-worth on demonstrated values. 
you know, I love you because you're so kind and caring rather than on action arising from a foundation of unconditional acceptance, safety and belonging. I love you because I love you. The former message implies that you're only safe and accepted if you show kindness and caring. However, we're no longer free to be kind and caring. We're bound to it as a prerequisite for belonging. Many such messages are absorbed and integrated from various sources growing up. In Punished by Rewards, Alfie Cohn looks at the evidence against the common assumption that people change their behaviour through positive reinforcement like incentives and praise. He points out the conspicuous absence of the long term in the evidence people use to support rewards, leading us to some rather unhelpful conclusions. People do change their behaviour in the short run when presented with positive outcomes for doing so, but this makes us dependent on external motivation. When the rewards are dropped, so too is the behaviour. turns out that we're not incentivized by the behaviour, but by the incentive. The rather dispiriting conclusion is that we are actually... F- less likely to act from intrinsic meaning and community feeling when our reality is built around systemic incentives and rewards. Instead, we must look beyond behavioural conditioning as the answer to society's ills. A community that uses behaviourism to change behaviour uses manipulation and control to get people to change. This erodes our humanity and turns us into little more than compliant robots in the factory of life. Encouragement differs from praise because it starts from a ground of being rather than rewarding a person at the level of acts. It focuses on character, not actions, and reinforces unconditional acceptance and belonging at the core of a person's sense of self. Thus, we are free, not forced, to act. In The Courage to be Disliked, courage is encouragement, you know, (laughs) to help give rise to courage in another, supporting them in becoming more of who they are, not who we think they should be or who we need them to be for our cookie cutter convenience. This is what happens in a healthy coaching or therapeutic partnership. You know, it's the practitioner's role to support the coachee in expanding, embracing, stepping into themselves and being alongside them as they figure that out. There's no place for praise in such a partnership. Praise as recognition comes from a vertical relationship. Essentially, I'm training you to be like I need you to be, or I'm training you to be like I want you to be, or I think you should be. It's given by someone who sets the expectations and judges success as to whether or not the other person has met those conditional measurements. When our sense of self-worth is tied to external rewards in that sense, breaking from the fear of what people think and the desire to be liked can actually feel really impossible. This underpins people-pleasing patterns. In this sense, being liked is praise and being disliked is punishment. So we might gravitate towards doing what we hope will get us recognition and we avoid doing what we've learned people don't really like, people will reject us for. Interpersonal relationship knots can tighten over time. Letting go of what people think can feel groundless and confusing unless we have a, a more concrete way of imagining our boundaries. It's not something you can suddenly do, is it? Even if it's something that you decide you're going to do, something that you want to do, it's the start of a path, not a magic and momentary transformation. Separation of tasks, thinking about it through this lens, is a pathway of intention, small steps, experimentation, play. It helps us hold ground when we want to run away or shrink ourselves to appease the demands of others. It gives us the perspective to reach beyond binary polarised power struggles and create space for more 
creative approaches to interpersonal relationship tensions. Recognizing that boundaries are about collaborating with the world around us to create conditions for better outcomes to arise. Narcissism is underpinned by a sense of entitlement to success, power and control over others. Some people place themselves at the centre of the world and blame their struggles on external factors. This resonates with the idea of inferiority and superiority complexes that we discussed earlier. And there's a distinction between the centre of the world and the centre of our own life. Of course, there's no way to be anywhere except the centre of our life. Is there? We experience the world from one position, our conscious presence within a single physical body. The book describes the subjective experience as infinite centres of the world and community feeling as the awareness of the independent beingness of all things. From here, we can take responsibility for our tasks, to be self-reliant, you know, responsible for our judgments, choices and beliefs, and to live in harmony with society, seeing others as comrades and collaborators for collective ends. Conversely, We enter into forms of narcissism when we outsource responsibility for our actions, choices and beliefs through scapegoating and blame. We hold other people as our enemies, competition, an obstacle to our happiness. This is an increasingly common position in contemporary society, especially in the polarising, disconnecting and alienating algorithmic world designed to serve corporate interests by elevating loneliness and destroying community feeling. I'm convinced that so much of our modern day antagonism emerges through our sense of groundless alienation from one another and our disconnection from deeper meaning. Individualism becomes toxic when it removes us from the collective story and leaves us fighting for a place at the centre of things. Community feeling is a universal ground of being. We are accepted at the level of existence, not acts. The book suggests that people without a sense of community feeling are driven to seek self-worth and personal value by showing superiority over others to compensate for feelings of inferiority, and that those with a deeper sense, deeper spirit of community feeling are motivated to pursue the common good for all present, following and future generations. I think there's an irony to the relationship with nowness in society. Community feeling results in connection and presence in the here and now as a through line between the past and the future this sense of connection between past generations, future generations, through the moment of of this present generation. A lack of community feeling leads to destructive and impulsive behaviour in the present. A sense of, yeah, let's just get on and do this now, because the individual is stuck bouncing between yesterday, blame, and tomorrow, fear. Community feeling isn't based on conditional belonging within a particular context. For example, the household, the school, the workplace, the neighbourhood. Instead, it covers regions, nations, continents, humanity, all living things, non-living entities, and the entire axis of time from the past into the future. This definition of community is kind of difficult to comprehend. I mean, it seems to contradict itself by incorporating everything in it. It's like, is it anything if it's everything? But it's simply the difference between the separate community, so the particular places with definable edges where we find ourselves in the here and now, and the larger community, our role in the bigger story of life itself the thing that once we sort of get out of the here and now the teacup that we're in um, we see something beyond that and that is something that is uh, that serves a purpose 
There is no single centre of the world, and this is true for places, for groups, for situations too. Looking at it this way serves a purpose, providing an anchor of connection and perspective when facing overwhelming and hopeless situations. For example, a toxic workplace or political turmoil, bullying at school or an unbearable family environment. Drawing community feeling from outside the proverbial storm in a teacup, shrinking the whole world to a single place in time, might take the edge off the immediate challenge and give us a foundation to establish a purposeful path forward. The other thing this universal community perspective does is to lay a ground of unconditional acceptance. It transcends the labels and identities our teacups use to limit and define us. For example, if we identify closely with our job role, we risk losing our deeper sense of self when we no longer have that job. The teacup focuses on one part of our life as the centre of the world and our entire reason for being. So if we connect our sense of personal worth and meaning to the communities we belong to, the prospect of change or loss becomes an unbearable burden. But if we can see the world beyond them from a ground of unconditional belonging, we'll have the resources to cope and respond when things change. This is not to say we should lack commitment or keep people at arm's length. It's not to diminish their influence and importance in our lives. Quite the opposite, in fact. It frees us to commit without fear of losing ourselves in the event of change, without fearing that impending doom of change, that foreboding loss that we talk about. Praise can be dangerous because it reinforces a link between our worth, the sense that it's okay for us to be here, and our acts, what we do. Or put another way, it enhances the idea that individual human value is something we must earn from others. And so the book proposes that the more praise we receive, the less we believe in our own power and responsibility. It's not the ability that we lack as much as courage. This sounds contradictory at first, but praise is a judgment. It emerges from a vertical relationship structure in the sense that it equates good behaviour with conforming to external expectations. Praise is received for diligently squeezing into the right mould, the mould that somebody else has set for us. We do what will get us the approval and recognition, whether or not it feels like the best thing to do. That's neither here nor there. When we build our self-concept on external praise and rewards for doing the right thing, we lose connection with our inner compass. We end up creating a highly divided and unequal world. This is what it means to lose the courage of our convictions. Courage is about doing what we know is right rather than what we learn to do because it leads to a social reward like praise, approval, recognition and prestige. A common assumption is that respect is about recognising the vertical hierarchy in which people are positioned. In other words, to respect someone is to be subservient to them. But this kind of respect is one way from bottom to top. On the contrary, genuine respect as a universal community feeling is horizontal. It must look beneath the person's symbolic roles and societal positions and see the human beneath the garb. The world doesn't have a centre, so no one, not even the most recognised or influential person, is more deserving of belonging than anyone else, not at the level of being. This idea might feel stupid or rude or disrespectful to someone with a solid vertical relationship outlook. Engaging in horizontal relationships with people who have achieved great things, who have achieved much more than us or hold great positions of power over us is incomprehensible. 
but the ultimate respect is to humanise the being within each person, to free them from tying their sense of self-worth to their job, to their position, to their past accomplishments, to look them in the eyes and allow them to be who they are without a mask or a demand. Again, this does not diminish or relinquish a person's abilities and experiences. It simply gives them the freedom to engage with their tasks as a human being rather than a cog in a strange machine. The ultimate show of respect is to allow space for humans to be humans, equal at the level of being regardless of age, gender, race, sexuality, intelligence, etc. We experience meaning and purpose when we can contribute to something outside ourselves. Being of use is what we do to live in harmony with society, to act from our sense of self-acceptance, rather than acting on a quest to acquire worthiness, permission to belong from outside of us. In this sense, community feeling, participating in the social fabric of the world around us, is the difference between doing something to belong, to gain acceptance through doing, and doing something because we belong, self-acceptance pre-doing. The courage to be disliked is also the courage to accept oneself before we do a single thing with our life. It's a lifelong journey, definitely not a one-time event. Life is like a piece of music. The goal is not to reach the end, it's to move in the rhythm and melody of the here and now. We play our part in the music of this moment, contributing, collaborating and creating. Likewise, you don't dance to arrive at a destination. Dancing is the goal. Music and dance are dynamic movements that take us beyond what they appear to be. This idea features strongly in the courage to be disliked. That for human beings, life is about more than survival. We're creatures of meaning and connection with the capacity for joy, love and transcendence. The sources of these experiences are often much more straightforward than we imagine them to be. But we can lose ourselves in the noise of thoughts, fear and the pressure we put on ourselves to be perfect and to be liked by everyone. According to Adler, I contribute to others is a guiding star. The reminder that we contribute to others is a simple foundational principle from which to live. But what does it mean to contribute to or be of use to other people? Is it a community feeling? The sense of using our life in ways that take us beyond our own little world? As social beings, meaning is created in community. Even when we build things alone, it's only when we bring the result or the experience into a communal space that we experience its potential. There was a priest who loved playing golf. So one Sunday he skipped church and drove to another town to play. On the first hole, a gust of wind took his ball and dropped in for a hole in one. Much to his delight, similar things kept happening and he finished his round with the best score of his life. Why are you rewarding him for lying and shirking his responsibilities? An angel asked God. Oh, contraire, God replied. I think this joke captures something beautiful, which I see kind of linked to the words of Chris McCandless in the tragic tale of Into the Wild, where towards the end of his life, he reaches this poignant conclusion that happiness is only real when shared. 
the golfing priest cannot tell anybody about his round of golf, which is essentially hell for him. His happiness is blocked because he can't share it with others without revealing his reason for missing church. Connection is a basic human need, as fundamental as food and water. Yes, even introverts who get overstimulated by social stimulation, we need to share our experiences in life. Contributing to others is the embodiment of this idea. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are creative beings in a vibrantly dynamic and beautiful world. Happiness in this sense emerges in the feeling of contribution. Being of use and contributing to others emerge on the other side of unconditional acceptance. We're free to contribute when we accept ourselves in all our messy, chaotic and contradictory imperfection. Community rituals embody this unconditional ground of acceptance. They help us come home to an anchor in time, a connection to life itself in the here and now. This might be a tradition that occurs every year, a ceremony that happens to mark reaching a certain age or a way of mourning loss together. Unconditional acceptance at the level of being means we're free to let go of acts as the site of compelled worthiness and to let our actions emerge from our creative spirit instead. We don't contribute to others in order to belong. We contribute because we belong. And we can't do anything to make us belong any more than we already do. Collective rituals and traditions like that are collective expressions of the difference between self-affirmation and self-acceptance. Affirmation is linked to doing, whereas acceptance is about being. Happiness is found through accepting one's incapable self as is and building life from that place. Not to reach a destination of ultimate capability, but to grow in partnership with our tasks and the things that matter to us. Affirmations, on the other hand, can be delusional and are linked to what we do. Self-affirmation encourages us to make suggestions such as, you got this, I can do this, I'm strong. Even when something is beyond our ability and we are overwhelmed. They don't give us courage because they're more like a demand, I should have this, I ought to be able to do this, I must be strong maybe to be accepted, to feel worthy, whatever. Self-acceptance says, it doesn't matter that I don't have this, or it doesn't matter that I actually can't do this. I'm still fundamentally okay. Healthy inferiority feelings point us towards areas of life that we want to improve or grow. So they leave space for our incapable selves to see what's in front of us and make plans accordingly. Community feeling extends acceptance and good faith to others too. Confidence is described as unconditional belief in others. Of course, accepting that we should believe in them unconditionally without sufficient evidence for trusting someone isn't easy. But in a horizontal relationship, we know we can't control the other person's thoughts, beliefs and actions. What they do with our confidence is ultimately their task. It's not to say be a doormat for the other person to walk on. On the contrary, Establishing and holding boundaries is our task, allowing us to develop this confidence. The universalizing judgments we make about the world are often built around personal experiences. Our emotions usually cloud rational analysis in this sense. This is part of being human. It's our task, however, to realize what is going on and reflect on whether or not the conclusions that we draw are helpful to us in the world at large. 
if one person criticizes us, two unconditionally accept us, and seven are indifferent to our actions and our existence, who do we focus on? Where do we invest our energy? In the one person who dislikes us, the two who love us, or those who don't care, or the crowd? Our judgment of the world is influenced by the story that we focus on. If we lack harmony, then we'll only see the person who criticises us. A worldview based on this experience will lead to a skewed perspective and a miserable existence. It will also likely perpetuate more of the same as we anticipate bad faith in our interactions with others. A train runs to the top of Snowdon, the mountain in North Wales, yet hundreds of people climb it every day. We might think the goal of climbing a mountain is to reach the top, but it's not. The purpose of climbing a mountain is to climb a mountain. There are often quicker ways to get to the end, but the destination is part of the process rather than the goal. Without the top, we have no direction. When we become attached to the outcome and all that comes with it, things like recognition, likes, prestige, success, however we define it, we can become miserable. But when we live life like it's the mountain, the music, the dance, we come to see our place in the here and now. Even though it signals the end, the goal of life isn't death. But the reality of death is what gives us access to energy, to life, to meaning, to love. So we reach the end of this particular journey. Uh, There are so many other directions the courage to be disliked could um, inspire for you know other articles other posts other podcasts As I said at the start if you're interested in reading the book with me um, let me know by signing up through the link in the show notes and I will run another set of sessions um, and I think we'd do it in in five again looking at each part um, and I'm convinced we would find other rabbit holes to run through um, if we did that you know it, it's sort of the sessions reflect the people who are there um, and yeah, the, the interaction with the ideas in, in it. So yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, if you have and you want to join me for other book clubs and other theme discussions, there are regular gatherings, as I said, at the, at the haven.co, the hyphen haven.co is where you can go to find out more. There's a, a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, and you can sign up for a monthly pass there uh, that you can, yeah, you can, it, cancel it anytime you're not locked into anything um, but if you are interested in coming and having some really lovely safe fun conversations about interesting deep things um, then i'd love to uh, to see you there and welcome you in um all right i'll be back again soon with another episode of the gentle rebel podcast until then do remember that even when it appears not to be gentleness with a firm back and a soft front is always an option Take care. Bye-bye.